0: Hello, you're listening to the Seven Point Highlander cast, the podcast dedicated to the magic format Seven Point Highlander. I'm your first host, Millie, and joining me on the line is Sav.
1: Hello, everyone. And
0: Vance. Hey, all. Now, our topic for this episode is a bit more of a strategic topic. We are going to discuss control decks, both playing them and playing against them. But before we get into that too deeply, we're going to go to our usual segment, What's the Point? And today we're asking, what's the point of Mana Drain? Who wants to start the discussion on Mana Drain? So I'll I'll
2: go first and give a bit of the historical background. So... Mana um, Drain is one of those cards that I'm pretty sure has always been a point, um, right back to you know probably the first point list. It was probably a point. It's uh, it's a two mana counter spell that uh, when you counter a spell, it gives you a pile of mana. It gives you mana equal to the converted mana cost of whatever you cast um, in your next main phase. It's on the face of it, it might not look that powerful. It just counters a spell, um, but it's one of those cards that lets blue decks really sort of turn the corner very early in the game by, you know, you can your opponent's turn three or four play, and then on your turn three or four, you play something gigantic. The classic one back in the day, which is probably not good enough anymore, was uh, Mana Drain into Mahamodi Chin. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> threats have gotten better <laughs> since then. Yeah, yeah. torrential gear like
1: I hear is kind of like 5-6, uh, and that's just better. I guess it doesn't fly, but, you know, flushing back things is good.
2: <laughs> yeah, so it's a point basically because it lets the control decks very easily... Just, you've got a one for one answer that then lets you deploy half your hand the next turn. Um, so you might mana drain and then mind twist your opponent's whole hand away, or play a couple of artifacts, or a big creature, or something. Uh, yeah,
0: in the early game, control decks often have to pick between do I choose to develop my board in some way, or do I sit back with a, a whole bunch of open mana and my handful of counter spells? Whereas mana drain just says, hey, why not both? Yeah,
2: I- exactly. It avoids that shields down moment because you can go, you know, counter your turn three play, on my turn three or four, I'll play this Tasica play Jace. or whatever. Yeah, play a Jace and still have counter mana up to, you know, whatever you're trying to do next.
1: Yeah, I love it. For a parallel in old school, it's uh, it's restricted in old school. So you get four counter spell, one mana drain. So it's it's kind of a comparison.
0: <laughs> cool not too powerful because otherwise it would be boosted up to two points it isn't uh wrecking anything it's just a very powerful tool at uh control deck's disposal
2: yeah absolutely so it's the sort of card that um as good as it is it is still ultimately a one for one so you know it's it's a lot better than well counterspell or fatal push or whatever but it's not it's not in general going to dominate the game on its own it's not a deck that you design it's not a card that you design your whole deck around but it's the sort of card that if it was zero points It would make all of the control decks better because they would all play it. All the blue control decks anyway. Um, But yeah, it's absolutely the sort of card that a deck like, I mean, lots, lots of people play it anyway, but a deck like Kespile or Blue Moon or Blue White Control or Blue Black would kill to have it zero points because it just means that they can fit another point in their deck because it's a card that they're reasonably likely to spend a point on anyway.
0: And that is the point on Mana Drain. Thanks for the explanation. And so let's get into the main topic for today. Now, Sav, you've been pretty excited to talk about this one. Do you want to introduce the topic?
1: Yeah, definitely. So we've been looking at trying to do deep dives for a while, and we've just started to dip our toe into deep dives in you know, specific deck techs. I know that everyone enjoyed the blue-black deck tech and also uh, deep dive with uh, Anatoly Lightfoot as well on his were uh, Tempo uh, Control-esque deck.
0: And Thank you for the feedback that we've been getting on that. We uh, really appreciate it and we've been taking it on board for the next ones that we'll be doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So we, we get to delve into things that, for the purpose of the audience, we're looking at both informing people who are new to Highlander. You might not be necessarily new to Magic, been playing Magic for a while, but you're jumping into Highlander. So we're going to be talking specifically about control in the context of Highlander. And then uh, for those who are established players, some of this will be more of a consolidation of knowledge kind of into one one cast, which we are uh, you know, guaranteed are not going to be able
2: to fit all of the information about control into one cast, but we will do our best to scratch the surface. And and just to clarify, Sav, when you're saying control, you're talking about dedicated hard control decks. You're not talking about something like, say, pile right? Yeah, so
1: control in Highlander is... An interesting beast because when you look at a singleton format, then you you have a certain limitation, you know, deck building limitation based on not being able to say, play four brainstorms, uh, four mana leaks or counter spells, or whatever, you know, whatever the format at that particular time is using. You don't get four obs. And you have the choice to either replace those four obs with, you know, strictly worse options as you continue to go down the list of strictly worse and worse counterspells or strictly worse and worse uh cantrips, until you get to a point where you're deck is uh, maybe consistent in being a hard control deck, but not particularly good when you draw the wrong selection of cards. And the alternative, which is what happens in control a lot, is being control splash something so for example being primarily control with a tempo backup plan or being primarily tempo with a control backup plan uh, being some kind of hybrid between a mid-range haymaker deck and a hard control deck uh, you know having some aspects of combo like a combo finish to a control deck so all of these kind of uh, hybrids uh, you know, different variations of what control looks like in Highlander. And all you need to do is make sure that your deck knows what its role is in any one point in time and doesn't have an identity crisis. And a lot of the times, Highlander decks have identity crises. So it's all about the player making sure you make the right decisions. What I want to do is today limit our discussion to what we call hard control. So hard control is all about where controlling the game is your primary game plan and you have an alternative strategy like a combo finish or this, you know, out of nowhere, you know, aggro, you know, bolt you and snap you and bolt you or or maybe this, uh, you know, this grindy mid-range backup plan, when you just want to start going sorcery speed, do all my stuff on my main phase, and just keep value- valuing you out. But all of those plans are probably going to be 10% or less of your games, or they're entirely non-existent. And at some point in the future, we'll dedicate episodes uh, purely to these, you know, aggro, mid-range, tempo, combo, and ramp strategies. But Uh, really think to yourself about this complicated Venn diagram and where exactly your deck sits in all of the overlaps, because once you know where you sit, once you know the strategies that you can play, you'll be able to effectively combat uh, your opponent.
0: So now that we've defined what a control deck is, let's have a bit of a chat about actually playing control.
1: So looking at playing a control deck in Highlander, let's just take an example deck, or at least an example shell of a deck, Uh, We'll use Blue Moon. So Blue Moon has popped up in a variety of incarnations. Uh, If you haven't seen it before, uh, you can pretty much turn back to Modern and just look at at how that's evolved in the past, where you have Blood Moon and you have a blue-red control shell. You have a variety of different variants of what Blue Moon can look like. Right now, Annihilator 6 is the current incarnation of Blue Moon with a combo finish. In the past, Blue Moon has looked like uh, some kind of splinter twin finish, so you also have a combo finish but this tempo element too there's also these madcap experiment type of things where you get blightsteel colossus and you know all of these variants are good because they use fundamentally the blue-red Control shell, which is just a strong, hard control strategy, where your primary game plan is just prevent your opponent from enacting theirs. Uh, once you've got some kind of soft or hard lock, depending on whether you've got you know Blood Moon out or enough counter spells, you decide to turn the corner and you beat down, probably with a utility creature like a Snapcaster Mage or a Vindilion Click. So. How do you know that you are a hard control deck? Well, let's use Blue Moon as an example. How do you win the game? Well, your finisher almost always plays some kind of other role. So Snapcaster Mage, uh, Torrential Gear Hulk, and Vendillion Click, these are all the interaction pieces. So they're primarily in the deck because you interact with them. You know, Snapcaster Mage flashes back a counterspell and Vendillion Click interacts with their hand. Then you've got things like wandering fumaroles. A lot of the time, blue-red just wins by attacking with a fumarole for, you know, uh, three or four attacks. And... That's not his primary game plan. Fumarole there is for mana. And Jace Vrin's Prodigy is there to loot and sometimes gain you value by flashing something back. And Jace the Mind Sculptor is a draw engine. He's there to brainstorm every turn or to bounce a creature. Uh, he's not there necessarily to win the game, but later on you choose to win the game when you turn the, turn the corner. Same with your burn spells, Fiery Confluence and Lightning Bolt. They're not, they're there to remove things, but they happen to also finish the game. So, Uh, If you look at that in comparison to a tempo deck, tempo decks are where you have uh, a creature that goes, I'm going to attack and you're going to protect me. Like Delver of Secrets, I'm going to keep attacking. Hooting Mandrills. I'm going to keep attacking. And uh, you're just going to keep a Spell Pierce to protect me and eventually I'm going to kill you. So really think to yourself... You know, uh, if you're building a control deck, and let's say that you're you're building a new control deck, you want to use something that's not the blue-red shell, and you want to uh, delve into a different colour uh, alongside blue, always, always think about optimising your interaction over everything else. So the largest number of possible slots in your deck should be consumed by interacting with your opponent, not consumed by, uh, say, a creature that is good. Because it can finish the game, it's always its secondary strategy. Um, yeah, I
2: mean, I think things that interact with your opponent, or that prevent your opponent from interacting with you.
1: Yeah, which I would say is interaction. But but ah, yeah. it's yeah, yeah. it's a uh, uh, blood moon is is the lovely way of interacting without interacting, <laughs> right? The art yeah. of interacting without interacting. <laughs> you go technically, I'm going to interact with you. This is a really good opportunity to talk about the blood moon package because. On the surface, you look at Blue Moon and you go, uh, you've got, you know, three Blood Moon effects in there, uh, along with Back to Basics, sometimes four if you're using Blood Sun. And you're, they they don't look like, they look like lock pieces, right? And, and they are lock pieces. But uh, if you're looking at the Blood Moon package in a control engine and in Highlander specifically, Blood Moon is... Both pseudo card advantage and interaction. So think think about Blood Moon uh, in the abstract as would you play a three converter mana cost card that says opponent discards their hand and you counter every spell they play? There's a few caveats, obviously, like if they don't have mana Dorks out currently, or, or that they're you know that they are actually running three colors and they don't have Seal of Primordium out ready to go. All of these kind of factors. But fundamentally it says, well, discard your hand and counter everything else you play unless you're lucky enough
0: to uh, lucksack that basic land off the top. Uh, oh, and- when taken <laughs> to the extreme, I guess, yeah, you could call Blood Moon something like that. Yeah, that's all right. So it is it is uh, an extreme view of looking at things, you know, like
1: this, this situation and... If anyone's been on the receiving end of a Blood Moon at the right time, you just go, oh, man, I just got seven cards in my hand. I'll start discarding. I'll start playing my mountains out. And it's really, really just disgusting. And uh, when I look at Blood Moon, I think of it as this, you know, ultimate piece of interaction and card advantage because there's very few three Converter Mana Cost cards that cause your opponent to effectively discard their hand uh, until such time as they draw that that basic land so this is probably why the blood moon package and uh, blue red in general has been considered the premier hard control strategy in highlander uh you know there's other more soft control and tempo-esque like uh, blue black uh control which is a great control deck that also has this tempo strategy in it and the the question is if you're sitting back and and you know we're we're looking at even before the game has begun, we're looking at control from the deck building perspective. You're you're con- you're constructing your control deck. You've looked at trying to have the maximum amount of interaction in your deck, and and, and looked at making sure that you've got uh, finishes that actually play other roles. So, if you're thinking about uh, you, let's say a, a bug control deck. You know, bug is one of these uh, great colors that you know, blue, black, and green. You go, oh, what's the benefit of adding that third color? What uh, we we have a great blue black control deck uh, that Millie talked about in a previous episode, and adding a third color what do i gain what do i lose you know the pro is you get more raw power you get you know the the advantage of say adding abrupt decay or something else that's really flexible maybe a new card advantage engine but the con obviously is that you're going to lose that blood moon package which is a a pseudo card advantage and a pseudo interaction package uh so uh, any comments about about the concept of of control in Highlander? Because we can talk about we can talk about building control decks in a second.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I wanted to add um, is don't fall into the trap of assuming your control decks have to be blue. You could have a control deck that doesn't contain a counter spell. Um, one example that hasn't been played in Highlander for quite a while probably isn't very good anymore, but used to be quite good. Um, is a deck called Parfait, which is basically a mono white enchantments mm. deck that just stops your opponent from ever interacting with you until you eventually, you know, kill them in some more or less irrelevant way. Uh, relying um, on
0: effects like Sphere of Safety, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, Moat, uh, Ivory Mask, Sphere of Safety. You, you just remove more and more of your opponent's deck from relevance uh, mm-hmm. over time, and then you know, kill them somehow. Um, so. Yeah, when you're thinking about brewing, counterspells are really good, but they're not they're probably the easiest option to build a control deck, but they're not the only option. Yeah, that parfait's a great example. That's
1: that's a fantastic parallel for Blood Moon, where you kind of go, Moat, I'm gonna make I'm gonna play Moat, and I'm gonna say, essentially remove three creatures. It's kind of like you did a Wrath of God, you know, some kind of card advantage engine, and you're you're proactively interacting with the future creatures they play. So you're kind of essentially counter spelling any creatures that don't have counter uh, that ca- have comes into play abilities that don't have flying so well i mean
2: uh, i know as a zoo player if my opponent plays moat i've got a hope to hell i've got them on low enough life to burn them out or I because <laughs> <a Kisali laughs> yeah. otherwise i just i don't have a game plan yeah, great. That's like the definition of control, isn't it? You
1: know, that's that's brilliant. Uh, that's same as things like mono black control. Mono black control is is really cool because you can use contamination as your your blood moon replacement, which effectively goes and says, okay, I'm going to preemptively counter uh, all the spells in your hand and anything that you draw that doesn't contain black. So, yeah, things don't have to have the word counterspell in them to to be fundamentally good control cards.
0: So moving on from Blood Moon, um, what are some ways that we could build a deck using three colors that keeps it as a control deck, but doesn't use Blood Moon? Yeah, great.
1: So let's, let's look at uh, the hypothetical. We just talked about uh, You know, Bug in, in some context there. Let's talk about uh, the blue-red shell adding that third color and dropping Blood Moon. If you play White... Then you you lose that pseudo card advantage engine of, of Blood Moon, but you gain card advantage by Wrath effects. You also get things like removal that exiles, and often that is denying card advantage to your opponent by exiling that Voice of Resurgence with your path to exile or source to plowshares, and um, the you know the. Blue, white, red uh, control was was discussed by Anatoly Lightfoot in the last one uh, with the tempo elements in it too. And uh, if you want to know more about that deck, go over there. You know, he's not running any blood moons, and that's because uh, that's something that you lose, but you gain a whole lot more in in the process. And the same goes for playing black. So once you take the blue red shell, you drop that blood moon, lose that pseudo card advantage engine, but you gain card advantage in the form of things like mind twist, which gives you that. Blood Moon effect where you've gone, I'm going to discard your hand. Well, I'm going to literally (laughs) discard your hand. Uh, and then things like Kess, which play that Snapcaster Mage role, but you know, once it's left unchecked, it's just a Snapcaster Mage on steroids. And Colligan's Command is a great example of a, of a real draw card for playing black in Highlander at the moment because it really, uh, you know, un- undermines the ability for birthing pod and skull clamp to be the way that other decks try to fight against control, you know, with this, this great, uh, you know, card advantage or, or, or combo esque element that usually is good against control in the abstract, but now it's, uh, it's pretty poor. Um, so in those, in those hypothetical situations, what you're thinking about is, making sure that you still interact with your opponent in some kind of way, whether it's proactively interacting with them by deploying, say, Mind Twist as a sorcery speed uh, interaction. Um, And you're just trying to make sure you generate some kind of card advantage or pseudo-card advantage that just overwhelms your opponent by uh, by interacting with them and preventing them from enacting their game plan. Um, If you're building, if you're brewing make sure that you don't lose that element. This is one of the most important things that I notice when people are trying to make a control deck, they end up adding the new spice of the of the time they they look at a new spoiler, they see a cool new card, they go, "This is fantastic, I love it. It'll be a great control finisher." And you go, "Why why are you playing that card?" because uh, you know, it's uh, it's That's now one less slot for interaction, because you've now got this seven mana, uh, sphinx of the final word. Uh, This is going to be great in control mirrors. I'm going to absolutely dominate them. But until you get to seven mana, you're sitting there going, oh, I I don't have any interaction and my opponent just steamrolled me.
0: So I noticed that you haven't talked a lot about green. Is there something against green as a control option? Or is it that it's just not bringing much to the table in these elements that you're talking about? Yeah,
1: green is green's a funny beast. I mean, green's really, really strange. So if we looked at that that uh, blue red shell and we added green, so we make essentially rug control. Uh, it's it's something that I've been trying to make work for a bit. I've made rug tempo work, and it's it's really good. Uh, but rug control is a strange situation, you know. A lot of green's great advantages are things that, things like Hooting Mandrills and Tarmogoyf, which are the fundamental definition of great tempo cards. But they are terrible control cards. Look at t- uh, Tarmogoyf. What text does it have? None. What text does uh, Hooting Mandrills have? It has an evasion aspect of Trample. These aren't really things that control decks want. They they don't really. They're not Snapcaster Mage. They're not this thing that interacts, but then later on does does allow you to win the game slowly but surely so
2: unfortunately
1: pretty well yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's a really good blocker. So in some ways, you can use it as a as a, a way to invalidate Zoo's creatures, but unfortunately, it often gets a uh, uh, Swords to Plowshare, and uh, oftentimes, as a hard control deck, once you start playing a uh, you know a Tarmogoyf, and your opponent goes, "Oh, yes, my Swords to Plowshares is turned back on again," and you go, "Oh man, yeah, this true. is really frustrating." <laughs> um, so so unfortunately, compared to green. Uh, White and black both just have more tools for interaction. They've got really good, efficient hand disruption in the form of Dress Inquisition, Thoughtseize, and uh, they've got really uh, you know efficient or card advantageous removal in the form of Colligan's Command and and uh, you know Exile removal and, and uh, Wrath effects. So let's do a little thought experiment. So can you make rug control a thing so we've just talked about what's going against rug control why isn't it a thing so what is it that you can do to make green viable in that shell now if you what you want to do is look for something that's unique what is something that is unique in the uh in the green cards that it, that are added uh, one of the great examples is Sylvan Library Sylvan Library is so good in Highlander that some decks especially non-blue decks play it in the main deck because it acts like a Sensei's Divining Top uh, in many other situations the uh, Sylvan Library is relegated to the sideboard because it's such a great card against control and often pretty woeful everywhere else when your opponent has even some semblance of pressure on you so uh,
0: you just can't afford the life to get the, yeah. the more utility out of the library in that case.
1: That's it. And yeah. I've countless times I've been playing a control deck, and my opponent resolves turn to Sylvan Library, and I didn't have the spell Snare, and I, it, it's this for any control player when you're on the receiving end of that, it's almost like your opponent played this piece of pressure like a creature almost, and you go, oh no, oh no, I need to win the game, uh, and I don't have any Enchantment Removal, and it's just this this uh, rough situation that, that you're put in and then your opponent just goes, uh, they just don't even look at the cards. And every time I got a Sylvan Library out against control, I don't even look at them and I just go pay eight. And <laughs> and, and then just start treating as a top after that. Um and the uh, that's a great example of, of a card where you can go, okay, rug control. So maybe I can play Sylvan Library in the main deck uh, or I can have it in my sideboard and it comes in against these control mirrors and it allows me to have this mirror breaker card because a lot of the time control decks don't have an answer to an enchantment. So, well, that's one option. Then we could have regrowth. Regrowth is an effect that is uniquely in green and it is something that, you know, doesn't really get uh, played in control decks because we don't have access to it because we don't play green. But now there's maybe a rug deck where you can use regrowth to actually return a pointed card in the late game and use it like a pseudo-demonic tutor. So uh, same with Eternal Witness. What about uh, Life from the Loam? Life from the Loam, I think, is another great tool that green has that could be in a, a rug control deck. And I often refer to it as a green ancestral recall because fundamentally it allows you to draw three cards which is really what (laughs) every control deck would love to do Uh, is a green spell so it can't be pyroblasted or hydroblasted and uh, they even if they did want to interact with it hey guess what if they counter it you get to play it again by dredging it and once you dredge it you fill up your graveyard with a few more lands now uh, there are probably interactions there with snapcaster mage thing you know flashing back things that you've dredged and at the end of the day if you're looking at control mirrors Uh, your green ancestral recall is essentially going to make you hit a land drop for the rest of the game and if you've ever played a control mirror before that is something that is a, a defining feature of control mirrors when does someone run out of land drops and is forced to act and we've now just identified basically two maybe three cards that are pretty good in control mirrors. So maybe Rug's advantage is it has this great sideboard plan or, or possibly main deck plan where it, it, it has a mirror breaker engine where you're able to actually just uh, you know outgrind an opposing uh, control grindy deck.
0: So you've talked a lot about the card choices for building these control decks. A lot of the cards will actually be the same between some of the decks. And you discussed how the different uh, types of decks can blend into each other. This is where having a mindset about playing control is really important in my mind, because you might look at a card that, like Eternal Witness or um, Sylvan Library, and go, "Well, this is what the role this is the role it plays in my deck that is a mid range deck or something like that or a tempo deck," whereas a control deck may have a different mindset about it. So. Let's get into what's different about playing a control deck. Yeah, definitely.
1: Well, we're going to touch on two points about playing control in Highlander. And the first point is about the fundamental definition between fair and unfair in Highlander. This is something that happens for control decks because we end up spending all of our points on fair cards and you know, you just go land go, your opponent, you know, then deploys this crazy army of zoo creatures with Moxen on turn two, and you go, oh no, you're doing unfair things essentially compared to my fair land go. Or your opponent goes, Lanowite Elves turn one, choke turn two. Uh, or they go Ew. and they storm off. They, they do like they cast a wheel of fortune and they ruin your ruin your strategy. And that's because Highlander has this bizarre situation where you know because of the way the point structure goes and because we go all the way back into you know vintage s cards that aren't legal in Legacy, there are unfair decks in the format, and we as a control deck need to combat it. So the question is, as a fair deck, as a control deck. What do you do in essentially uh, being prepared for the unfairness that is Highlander? And number one, this is probably one of the philosophies that I use and I adhere to a lot. Don't cut force of will from your points. And this is because, because greed. force of will
0: is your main way to fight things that you could. It simply answers things that you otherwise couldn't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Correct. Like that's that's why you have it. Would you put days in like that and other possibly? I haven't seen Pact of Negation played much in um, Highlander, but Mm. it kind of falls into that same sort of category.
1: Yeah, some kind of like free interaction. Things like, you know, never cut Mental Misstep, never cut uh, days if you're a tempo deck or have a tempo element to your deck. Uh, Having that ability to interact with your opponent. Oh, same with um, Spell Snare. So I see a lot of people go, well, Spell Snare is pretty underwhelming. I'm going to cut it. But what do you do when you're on the draw and your opponent... Uh, you know, your storm opponent plays a two drop like Helm of Awakening, and you go, this is going to enable your strategy next turn, and you're going to go off, and I'm not going to be able to uh, deal with it effectively. Uh, these kind of really, really light uh or or, you know card disadvantageous interaction pieces are so important and right now the reason i say never cut force of will is because greed is real everyone's kind of going okay Kess pile and evolving it into this more of this mid-range strategy cutting force of will playing mind twist and you know other points and uh i think that's kind of a, a religious thing that i approach with hard control is not cutting force of will Uh, Another one would be a Spell Pierce. is a good example. You know, it feels weird playing Spell Pierce in a control deck because it's fundamentally something that you often use to protect something, you know, like a tempo creature and you protect it with Spell Pierce or protect your combo if you're a combo deck. But if you don't have access to Inquisition and Thoughtseize because you're not in black, then Spell Pierce main in control, although it feels weird, I think is a a thing to do to not let you lose to turn two choke. It's yeah. also
0: the utility that's provided by cards like um, sensor and miscalculate because they're relatively low cost to run because you can if you find that you're like eh, I'm not actually in a p- point where I can tax someone out of this, I yep. can just cycle yep. it away and I'm still going to be in a good position. But I've got that option there for the early game. If Perfect.
1: Okay. I love I love sensor as an example. It's great. Uh, the there's there's a, a reverse to this. We've just talked about efficient counterspells an efficient interaction of or free interaction the the other on the other hand don't skimp on cards that allow you to be versatile in different matchups because unfair decks do different unfair things you know a, a zoo deck plays moxen but you can't really interact with those moxen and they play their creatures out really quickly whereas the storm deck has non-creature spells so a card that is able to interact with both of these even though it's not efficient is is a charm you know is a charm does both you know is effective against the creature matchup and against the uh storm matchup for example other you know non-creature based matchup and counters choke and it will just play a role in pretty much every every uh, uh against every opponent that you have same with things like fire and ice and a braid these cards are not efficient but they're versatile and we need to be able to answer unfair things in highlander
0: now i've got a question for uh removal and using removal as a control deck because you have all these options are you generally of the opinion that at least in those first couple opening turns you should just be removing everything as much as you can or countering everything as much as you can or how selective do you think you need to be about like, you know what, I have an option to counter this, but I'm less concerned about this. Or um, I could remove it, but I'm going to save this removal for something else. Because that's a question that comes up with um, formats like modern and mm-hmm. in particular standard. But when you're dealing with a format like Highlander where every single card is probably played because it's good enough to win. Um, what, what What's your opinion on that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, like you said, every card is is good enough to win because, you know, we're looking at the the medley of all the best cards in, in the history of Magic. Uh uh, the good thing about playing control is that you know ninety-five percent of the time the logic of playing control in other formats applies to Highlander. Thankfully, you know all the great articles in the past that you've read about playing control and control mirrors. Uh, all of those logics apply. Then there's this five percent of the situations where you go, yeah, choke turn two is a common thing that happens in Highlander and absolutely wrecks you. Uh, you know, moxen with with zoo creatures on on uh, turn two, turn one and two is something that's uniquely Highlander uh i think it's situational and it's all based on what you have currently uh, access to in your 60 like if you've got an anger of the gods in your in your 60 then this is the kind of situation where you might actually think about not removing the creature to try and get a two for one three for one or four for one um so i think it's situation dependent but i would say that if you're a control deck you want to have as flexible as possible for all of your main deck cards so that you can have those options available. So yeah, deciding whether or not to remove something is okay. Whereas when you get pigeonholed and you go, I must always interact every single first three or four uh, uh, interactions uh, moments that are presented because I know that I can't get back if they get two creatures out and I I don't have a wrath effect or I don't have you know fiery confluence, for example, in the main deck. Um so, yeah, I think it's situational. I think it's based on the construction, but most of the time, other control logics apply.
0: Excellent. Now, you mentioned Anger for the Gods. That's sort of a catch up effect. Is it. You haven't really spoken too much about those in control decks. Do you think that there should be uh, one of them, a couple of them in your deck?
1: Yeah, this is this is a really uh, good question as well. With when you're building control in Highlander, uh, obviously caveat being meta dependent. If you're in a particular meta where you have a lot of creature based uh, decks, then obviously you know there are candidates for main deckable uh, wrath effects. But what I find that I'm doing is I, I tend to ensure that there's one out in the deck. So if you're playing Kest Pile, you play the Toxic Deluge in the main deck. So that's your one out for you know when you're really, really far behind against a creature deck. If you're in uh, red, then I would recommend that you keep Fiery Confluence in the main. Now, a lot of the time people have been moving Fiery Confluence to the sideboard because... After that, remember that ruling that we talked about? I don't know which episode it was in. We talked about ah, uh,
0: the big rules change. Mm, mm. And after that, know. we kind of
1: went, oh no, uh, it's it's much worse now because it doesn't kill planeswalkers. The thing is, fiery confluence in Highlander is, is awesome. It's, you know, what, the second best confluence <laughs> in, in the format? It's totally main deckable solely as a destroy the odd- Birthing pod and two creatures, a couple of creatures, or Wrath away all of the zoo creatures, or sometimes six your face, cast six your face again. So, yeah, yeah, I think it is. It is the main deckable card, and, and and try not to cut it if you want to have that one possible answer for when you are behind.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you can make arguments for having a couple, but you don't want too many because one of the reasons you want to have these versatile answers that I was talking about, like Fire Ice and Is it Charm, is um. You can't afford to too frequently have cards in your hand that have no text or have, you know, virtually no text uh, in the current situation. So a card like Anger of the Gods is really good, the 30% of the time it's good and the rest of the time it's just a complete blank.
1: Mm-hmm. And post-sideboard, how many times have you found yourself going, all I need to do is top-deck Anger of the Gods and I'm back in this game? You know, <laughs> that, that feeling. <laughs> well, it's why we have sideboards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Paradise. So I, I, what I'm like waiting for, most
0: of the discussion is the control decks, because we're obviously trying to win the slow the slow game we are the ones that are going to sit back, control the game and then find a way to win. Those first couple of turns in the game are going to be really critical to your game plan for the rest of the game and just your general survival odds for the rest of the game. And I think that's where the the worst situations are most likely to happen, like turn 2, turn 3 when mm. you've decided to play your hand out a certain way because you've got the most options and therefore you've also got the most ability to screw up, essentially. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. What, yeah. You...
0: How do you think a Highlander player should have a mentality approaching these early, early turns?
1: Yeah, that's a, a good question. So this this leads into that second point that we're talking about with playing Highlander. Uh, I like to have in the the back of my mind, uh, and I'm, I'm not paranoid here, but <laughs> I think to myself... What's the worst that could happen? Not in an ironic way, but truly what is the worst thing that they can do? And we talked about choke. Is is it possible that they're on a green deck, it's post-sideboard, and the next turn they've got the Llanowar Elves out and they could possibly play choke? Uh, then we go, oh, okay, well, what's the worst that could happen? Then that means maybe I do need to duress them or uh, inquisition inquisition them to make sure the choke is not in their hand. Uh If you have access to two mana at the time, that means you take the conservative route and you make sure you have your counterspell up for that choke. At the end of the day, Highlander Haymakers from all the other decks that are are not control decks, usually, are way, way, way more polarizing than control deck cards. Control decks are, you know, really streamlined, highly interactive and play these cards like Sensor, you know. Sensor doesn't look like an impactful card, but it's glue that holds a control deck together. Fire and Ice, not an impactful card, but it's glue because certain times you're able to kill two mana dorks, sometimes you cycle it, tapping their land, allowing you to untap and play uh, jace without them having two mana open to mana leak it you know they're they're just glue and if you can think to yourself what could they possibly do when they untap and it's something that's going to destroy you then you should take the conservative route don't play your preordain you know don't tap off your your uh, remand you know even if it's just going to buy you one turn choose to
0: have that remand open or choose to have that uh, mana leak open I think this opens up another question, which is, um, because we can take the cream of the crop from the history of magic and whatever colors we're playing, a lot of our spells, even if they do very different things, are going to be very cheap. So there's going to be a lot of hands that you look at and go, you know what, I've got a couple of lands, I've got a couple of cheap spells, this is a good hand. Um, But you have to look at the qualities of the spells that that you're looking at as well, because just having any land and any spells is not going to be the be-all, end-all in a control deck.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, if if in doubt, Mulligan. I I, I think that Mulligan aggressively in control is, is really good, especially when you think, well, any single Haymaker, like a Choke, could just beat my decent hand. It's a decent hand, but... I sit there and I preordain and then I ponder and then my opponent plays choke and I go I wish I mulled and kept a hand that had Inquisition of Kozilek in it. If you're playing blue black, uh, same thing goes with you know control mirrors and actually in general just just don't keep a two lander on the plate. Uh, you look at the rest of the cards, you go yeah yeah this is a this is a good hand two land and five cool spells yeah this is great just mulligan. <laughs> The number of times I've kept that two lander and you don't hit the the fourth land on curve or the third land, and you know on curve. If you're really unlucky, you don't hit the third land on curve, but you don't hit that fourth land on curve. You're a control deck. <laughs> you, you need four lands.
0: <laughs> Man, yeah, and I think land, a little bit.
2: Great. Says
0: the <laughs> 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 I think a little bit of what I was hinting at here was that, um, say you open a hand, and like it'll change varying if on if you know the deck that you're coming into play or not. But, like, a hand that's full of cheap removal might be completely dead against, like you said, a Choke that lands or even a Blood Moon if that is going to come down and you're in one of the three color control matchups. Uh, whereas a hand that starts with, like, an Inquisition or Thought Thoughtseize or any of the other things will and has some sort of counterspell is probably going to be much higher value because it gets you information and then it gives you a tool to deal with that information and information Mm -hmm. is what a control deck absolutely thrives on it lets you prioritize things um it lets you pick and choose what you're going to counter and what go like you know what they might tap out for that and i just don't care because i've got a damnation that i'm going to play later on that sort of thing
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely
0: So we've spoken a lot about building control decks. We've spoken somewhat about playing a control deck and the sort of things that you want to look for and identifying what your opponents are doing and what you should be doing. Let's talk about the other side of the table, playing against control. One thing that could be gleaned from this discussion is that there is a lot of different control decks out there or decks that are going to have control aspects to them. So knowing how to fight that is going to be a vital part of what your deck can have in its arsenal. And I think an appropriate place to start would be the anti-control. The control (laughs) The anti-control deck, yep. (laughs) Which is the most aggressive deck that you can get. So (laughs) let's turn to our resident aggressive deck expert. Vance, how do you play against control?
2: It it depends a bit on what kind of control deck they are um, and what you think they're doing. So it's... I mean... The simplest answer is you try and lay out threats and reduce their life total as much as possible, as fast as possible, against most control decks, um, because you want to get in a position where, uh, you know, by the time they start getting their X for ones against you, so you know they're rafting you on turn four, mm. you've dealt them enough damage that they're pushed into a corner and they have to start deploying things in a suboptimal way. So you want to push them into a position where you're forcing them to make high-risk decisions and hoping they don't pay off, or you're forcing them to use their counterspells on cards that they normally wouldn't necessarily care about, um, so that you can try and wear out their hand and then push through those last few points of damage. Yeah, so it's, it's about trying to line up your threats so that you get as much out of each card as possible, because you are always going to be... the Zoo deck is always down cards in these matchups, because, you know, control decks are playing... Cards like Brainstorm, which give them a pile of card quality, and cards like I don't know, uh, Ancestral Recall, let's say, which draw them extra cards. Um, so you've got to get as much out of each of yours as you can, and try and make the game as short as possible in general.
1: Yeah, I I think that every time when I've been on a control deck and then my opponent opens with the you know the the aggressive creatures, there's this this feeling where you go. Aha, uh-huh, I'm going to get you, and then you anger of the gods away their creatures, but you still don't feel comfortable because you're at six, and you've, yeah. you hit the nail on the head right there where you just kind of got them to such a low life total that every top deck for you is like the control player is living in fear. <laughs> right
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, i think he- i've literally been like gripping my leg under the <laughs> table when i've been playing against vance and i'm like i'm at five and i think i've stabilized but i'm holding a grip of cards and none of them are counter spells so i hope he doesn't get it and yeah. then he gets it
2: <laughs> one of the things that you do need to do as a zoo player and it's i'm certainly not perfect at it and it's a hard skill to learn but you've got to learn those moments when you've just got to put them on hard nothing. So mm. where, you, where you've just got to go, all right, they're on six, I've got a lightning helix and a lightning bolt. Every turn that the game goes on is worse and worse and worse for me. Mm. Uh, their cards are vastly better in the late game. And it becomes more likely
0: that I'm holding a counter spell. Exactly.
2: exactly. I've seen a lot of players play in fear of, uh, my opponents, you know, pass the turn with six islands untapped and they've got four cards in hand, they must have a counter spell... But at some point, you've just got to call that bluff, and learning mm. when to call that bluff is, like I said, it's it's not trivial. Um, we could probably we could probably do a whole episode on that kind of thing, but um, mm. yeah, it's it's very easy. It, there's fear in both directions, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yes, the control player is in fear that you know every top deck might just kill me, and the aggro deck can get the fear of maybe they've just got the counter spells, but you're gonna have to get through those at some point, so it might as well be now.
0: So That's as not the... to say that you don't have any way to play around it. Like, if you're holding... Oh, of course. Um, I'm trying to think of a card that doesn't that deals a little bit more... Like a... Like a Price of
1: Progress or something like Boris that. Boros Charm?
0: Yeah, if you're holding a Boros Charm and you're holding a Lightning Bolt, then in terms of raw damage, the Boros Charm is going to be of higher value. So you can sequence your plays, and your stuff is so cheap that probably at that point in the game, you're probably going to have enough mana to cast a couple of spells. So you might go, it's more important to me that this four damage gets through. I'm going to play the lightning bolt. If they have the counter spell, hopefully they counter it because they really don't want to be down at one. If they do counter it, then I can slam this Boros charm and I got in an extra point of damage. Some control players, to flip back over to the other side of the table, however, will go, if I've got a counter spell and they play a lightning bolt and I'm at four... Sure, I'll let them play the Lightning Bolt because I'm not dead yet. And I'm (laughs) going to save this for the card that will actually kill me. So you've just got to kind of weigh it up in your mind and try and sequence your cards to make sure that your most important stuff is more likely to get through. Um, And hopefully the control player will make the wrong decision. They're not going to have perfect information a lot of the time, so there's going to be a fair bit of guesswork on either end.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's One of the questions you need to ask yourself on any given turn um, as the aggro player is you'll often have a variety of options that will leave your opponent on slightly more or slightly less life in the short term. Um, And and you've got to work out when it's important to just take that short-term advantage. So there are times where on turn three, instead of playing the exit creatures, the right thing to do is just put their life total as low as possible. There's other times where the right thing to do is hold on to those burn spells so they think they're on a higher life total than you think they're on if that makes sense.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: As the as the agro play events, is there a you know, a formula that you often use when deploying the order in which you deploy your one drops because let's say you've got a whole bunch of one drops and one of those one drops is is of better value than another one drop? Do, do you have any sequencing that you use or do you just kind of go by gut or bait by, by the situation?
2: it it depends I mean assuming you know what they're playing mm. um, my usual strategy is just to deploy the best one first well yep. the one that will deal the most damage first. Um, if you've got haste creatures you might want to hold them back because you on average you'll get about the same amount of damage out of them and you'll get slightly more out of the other ones true um, true but yeah like if i've got an opening hand and my choice is play wild the cattle or play curt ape then unless i think they've got something that deals two to them the cattle which you know would be an embarrassing way to lose it <laughs> um, i play them the cattle first because i just want to deal that extra damage so is that basically um, on like the kind of you...
1: high upside spectrum where you go well if i deploy the wild the cattle and they don't have mental mist it I get in, you know, three or four more damage. If I deploy the, you know, I, I play conservatively with the Curd Ape and they don't have Mental Misstep, I've actually lost four damage. So I'm playing around this one yeah, exactly. card that might possibly exist and you, you just kind of go for the highest upside play even though there is some amount of risk.
2: Yeah, and obviously it depends a bit from hand to hand, but... Um... I would mostly just pretend mental misstep doesn't exist. If they've got it, great. They'll have yeah. it, you know. It's one card out of 60. They'll have it, whatever that means, a couple of percent of the time, 5% of the time, 10%, whatever it is. And most of the time they won't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're often playing
1: it, playing it in the context of, well, uh, mental misstep, inquisition, and thought seeds are all kind of uh, the same. Like you're on the play, so you're going to go, I'm going to pl- deploy Kodate, and they could either mental misstep it or... They can untap and they could inquisition the one that you kept in your hand if they were say choice choosing between two one drops. So it's it's kind of a uh, an interesting scenario that obviously you know differs every time. But if you've got a yeah, I I like that idea of just kind of deploying the the most impactful thing. You know, high upside.
0: I think another thing to consider is that the aggro deck kind of only has one game plan. The control deck, at the end of the day, is going to take whatever detritus it has left around of its cards and beat you with it because you've lost your way to win. And they're like, yeah, a 2-1 snapcaster, mage. That's good enough to kill you and they'll eventually do it. Aggro won't have that option. So Mm -hmm. you kind of just got to really jam in plan A and hope that it's good enough. Make the most of it. Give yourself the best opportunity to win. Yeah,
1: Definitely. I like that. What's your
0: thoughts on Creature on Lands? On the other hand, if I'm playing a control deck, if you guys want to <laughs> take your time because you want to save the best things in your hand, please do so. I promise you it will work out great to give me time <laughs> to get set up. <laughs> I'd really love it. <laughs> um, Creature Lands, uh,
2: I think if they come into play tap, you can't afford to play them in an aggro deck, but that's... Mm. um. That's a story of a whole other episode. Uh, The one other thing I did want to add um, is post-sideboard, as the aggro player, you obviously need to play slightly more conservatively. So Mm. most game ones, if I've got the ability to go one drop, double, one drop, two drop, one drop was sort of my first three turns, I'll do it every time. Nice. My opponent is going to take a pile of damage. They've probably only got two, maybe three sweepers in their whole deck often one, and I'll take those odds. Mm. Um, Post-sideboard, though, obviously, as we were saying before, control decks are going to be sideboarding in cards like Damnation, Anger of the Gods, etc., etc., etc. So your risk that your opponent is sandbagging and using their life as a resource uh, is much higher. Yes, Um,
1: yep. Uh, And and valuing those Sulfuric Vortex and all those other kind of... uh, 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 pyrostatic pillar type effects, where they've just got this ongoing ability, that's a haymaker for you, right? So you kind of want to be conservative about when you deploy that, you know, thinking it. Whilst you, you're going to go, well, my Wild my Nakata will get countered or it won't. But when your opponent counters one of those really haymakery, uh, you know, anti control finishes like Sulfuric Vortex uh, parallels, you, that feels bad, doesn't it? <laughs> So, Millie, before you were saying that in the mirror, you want to preserve, uh, you want your opponent to go slow, right? You just want to play lands and go slow because it's going to work out for you. How do you approach it when you're running blue-black control slash tempo? Because you've kind of got two game plans, don't you?
0: Yeah. So my deck, the blue-black control tempo deck, is, it's honestly going to depend on a lot on what I can identify with what my opponent is doing and on the cards that I draw because sometimes I'm gonna op- open up my first hand and be like, cool, I've got thoughtsies. Inquisition, Counterspell, and Mana Drain, and I'm like, well, I'm settling in for some hard control right here. Mm, I'm not going to let anything resolve. I'm going to pluck threats out of their hand first. Um, We're not winning the game, whereas if I look at my hand and I'm like, cool, I've got an opportunity to slam a turn one Delver. I'm going to Mm. immediately get on the attack and try and put that pressure on. I'll choose to instead take the tempo roll. So it's going to depend a little bit. Um, In terms of the if we're both sort of sitting in that kind of mirror role, it's going to take a lot of evaluation of how the game is shaping turn to turn, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't go into a game being like, right, I'm playing against another control-like deck. Um, I think I'm the slower deck, so I'm just going to be the the one who sits back. Because sometimes if they have drawn better than you, and have more of the control the really controlling options like counter spells on that that's just going to end up with you playing straight into their hands um mm. so you kind of have to test the water sometimes um maybe try and resolve one thing or another a lot of these games will end up being the first couple of turns are both decks slamming discard spells against each other because It'll give you information, which is absolutely crucial to determining what your role is going to be in a match and therefore countering spells to deny information grabbing Um, and using spells like brainstorm and ponder and that sort of thing to shape your hand so that you're in a good position for fighting over a threat, which is what tends to happen. So eventually, if you're just sort of going land, go or land, draw a spell go cantrip kind of thing. You'll get to a point where you're both sitting in like four or five mana and then someone goes, all right, true name nemesis. And you want your hand to be in the better position to deal with that. And you can do that two ways. You can either have applied your own threat earlier. So you're forcing them to play their hand a little bit earlier. Mm. Or you can have a hand that is just got more options. So They go True Name, you go Counterspell. They go Mana Drain, you go Force of Will. You hope that they don't have a Negate or anything like that. It it takes time. It takes practice. I wish I could say I'm good at it. I've got a pretty good track record in Highlander for Control Mirrors, but I think that's more a case of not many games played than true (laughs) to to have meaningful (laughs) statistics than uh, anything about my skill. So... I won't talk too much further on that, aside from it takes practice and you've you can't just lock yourself into one role. You've got to mm. adapt turn to turn.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't sell yourself short. It's that sounds like a, a really good approach and I reckon people are gonna benefit from that. If people are picking up control decks or tempo decks for the first time now, they're 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 gonna try and really think about how they can break the mirror, really. You know, that that's one of the most skill intensive types of matches, isn't it, where both of you are on a very similar deck, you have similar outs, and you you have those situations where you go, okay, I'm going to thought seize you, I'm going to take your thought seize, so I know your hand, you don't know my hand, and then we're going to play a game where I've got information advantage. So... Uh, for those of you who are brewing at home and thinking about making control decks and I probably sound like a broken record because every time I put out a deck tech I'm going oh this is designed to compete in a control meta and so on and so forth but that's just because there's been a lot of control around and you know I uh, I had the mirror breaker package in an to 6 with a sneak attack Emrakul and that's really good because you know you can't pyroblast a sneak attack and then uh, in cast pile I started playing Liliana the last hope because you can't blast it and played all these three drop threats so that you can just protect them with one minor interaction and then as soon as everyone else started doing that as well then it became this kind of mid-range fest so most recently I've been playing rug life and that's a tempo deck that has a control element to it again and you just get in you know big chunky green creatures like timego and hooting mandrills and just use soft permission to protect it and that's really where you want to be when you Trying to defeat uh, enemy control decks, and um, uh, oftentimes your threats just can't be pyroblasted or hydroblasted, you know, hitting mandrels and the like. So, these are all ways that you can kind of build something that gives you that edge when you're in a control meta. And, you know, a lot of people they like playing control. Uh, or they like playing against control, but a lot of people hate it. They just hate playing against control. You know, the concept that you can't get to enact your game plan. They hate blood moons. You know, they hate getting things counted. But I think fundamentally Highlander overall, the meta is robust, and we've got so many different choices between points. And overall, the whole deck building process is pretty innovative and and hopefully fun to some degree.
0: And the more that you... If you find that you personally dislike or struggle playing against control, then there is something that you can do about it, which is mostly comes in the form of your sideboard. Magic across time has printed a plethora of spells that say oh, can't yeah. be counted or say <laughs> nice or yes. have some other means about them that makes them very difficult for control decks to deal with. I mean, even I, in my deck, like I run Teferi, uh, I can't remember his full title, but the creature Teferi. Oh, he's um, so cool. Yeah, Major <laughs> here, that uh, means that my opponent has to play things at sorcery speed, so they can't play counter spells anymore, essentially. So if I can sneak that in, then I'm in a really good position, mm. or I'll play. Um, what's the Planeswalker? The blue black one? Ashiok. Oh, Ashiok. Ashiok, yeah. Yeah, um, who is a cheap Planeswalker who is really effective against control decks because they. He doesn't put on a huge amount of pressure, but if he lands on the field, he will eventually mill them out. I can sometimes get rid of their win conditions, that sort of thing. So they're kind of forced to deal with it. And the only way to effectively deal with it oftentimes as a control deck is to counter it on the way down. Mm -hmm. They're not holding a counter spell. They're in a pretty bad spot. Yeah. So it's shaping your deck to be able to deal with those. If you're like, you know what, I'm in a control heavy meta, then shape your deck shape your sideboard and you are going to make your uh, fellow control players lives a lot more difficult
2: <laughs> <laughs> my, my last thing that i'd add is not about the deck building part but and we could do a whole episode on this so i'll just speak briefly it's important when you're playing particularly in things like control mirrors or mid-range versus control is at every point in the game you've got to be thinking to yourself do I benefit from extending the game or do I want to make it end as soon as possible? Yeah. Um, It's like, for those of you out there who've ever played chess, there's various board positions where one player is more than, really wants to trade off pieces one for one as much as possible and the other one doesn't. It's the same in Magic. You often get in positions where one person's like, if I can trade one for one for the next ten turns, it's amazing because I'll win. You've got to know who's the beatdown. Absolutely.
0: All right. so... As you can tell, we could talk about control for ages. And we have <laughs> talked a huge amount already and there's even more to talk about. So we're probably not going to revisit this particular topic for a while, but we probably will revisit it at some point. Um, in the meantime, let us know what you thought. Because we can take your opinions and your feedback and use it for episodes that we can do on the other major archetypes of magic, such as aggro decks, mid-range decks, tempo decks, combo and ramp decks, and how they manifest and get played in Highlander. Um, And that way we can make a better show for you. But there's so much to talk about. So before we get into the outro, we're in the middle of Guilds of Ravnica spoiler season. And... While there, most of the set hasn't been spoiled at this point, it is technically just day one of spoilers, there was a bomb dropped on day oh, one. Oh, a spicy and bomb. And we we couldn't not talk about it. So let's talk about what is the latest and greatest staple removal spell for your black-green deck, Assassin's <laughs> Trophy. Sav, did you want to read the card? Alright,
1: right, I'll read it out and then Vance can tell us about it because I know he's got a hankering for it. So (laughs) it's called Assassin's Trophy or Astrophy, as I call it, because it's very long. It's a very long word. Uh, It's black and green, so two converted mana cost, instant speed, destroy target permanent and opponent controls. Its controller may search their library for a basic land and put it onto the battlefield, obviously shuffling their library. What do you think, Vance?
2: I struggle to believe this is the text of a real card but <laughs> it really is um this is going to go in the main decks and sideboards of a huge number of decks so if you're playing jund if you're playing saltai if you're playing reanimator uh get yourself a copy of this card it it does basically it's really good uh it's better the more at the control end you are of the spectrum uh, in general i'd suggest um it destroys just anything. So,
0: literally. Mm, if yeah, anything. literally. <laughs> it doesn't even say non-land yeah, permanent. Yeah, so
2: good. <laughs> it, it even destroys basic land. Um, <laughs>
0: it destroys so, the, the
2: one basic land in their deck. <laughs> or or you You could be in positions where, you know, if you're playing against something like Pile and you've got a Blood Moon out, um, they probably only have one swamp in their deck. So mm, mm. if you astrophy it, um they can buy black mana that's right they can fetch another basic but they can't fetch another swamp probably um it's yeah this is going to be just a huge highlander staple um you can put it on isochron scepter which is going to be
0: anything isochron scepter oh my gosh that's gross (laughs) yeah um it
2: You know, it kills any creature. I think one of the things that's interesting, if you're thinking about, I mean, it's Highlanders, you probably just played both. Um, But uh, the obvious comparison is Abrupt Decay. So Abrupt Decay kills any non-land that costs three or less. Um, And it can't be counted. I think Abrupt Decay is much better when it's good. But Assassin's Trophy is just so incredibly versatile. I'm trying
0: to think of a reason why you would have this if you're playing black and green why would you have this in your sideboard and not in your main deck (laughs) and if you don't have it in your 75 at all I'd your deck must be doing something that really doesn't care about yeah. what your opponent is You're doing. You're playing the, because the weird universal answer is <laughs> yeah. so
1: rare. It does everything. You're I playing think, the weird the weird deck, deck is... that Vance was talking about before that's a a Jund deck with blood moon in it that somehow has a lot of basics and then you destroy their basic. So there's probably some weird deck where you don't want
2: this card but I I, I don't imagine that's a real deck. <laughs> so if, yeah. I was, if I was I've got one example that I can think of but it's the only one I've been trying to think all day uh, about <laughs> examples uh, John's Zoo I'm not 100% sure you can find space in the main deck for this because Abrupt Decay is enough better because you hope the game is basically over by the time they're casting four yeah. cost Um, but other than that if you're not playing this and you have access to green and black mana you might have just lost your mind
0: hmm I am trying. Like it's. I love this card. I mean, it's. It's just raw power, which is mm. in a spell, which isn't something that we see too often in modern day standard magic sets. Yeah. Um, often they'll give us like a haymaker or two in the stuff like battle bond or commander. Slow cooker turning off. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's all right. All right. But in standard, this is so rare, and for us, that's a huge boon because that means that such a powerful tool, we're going to have this window where it's really easy to get. It's going to be expensive in terms of like a a standard expensive rare, but it's not a mythic. Thank People God. are going to be opening tons of this set because it also has shock lands in mm. it, which is also something that Highlander players should take note of because it's a good opportunity to grab some staple lands. And even if it gets up to like 20 bucks or something, this card is worth it. The, the and pre-order price is 30 I currently. I can't stand the art because <laughs> I just, as somebody who, like, when it comes to the Guilds of Ravnica, it's, I am very much an Azorius person. Oh, no. <laughs> I, you, shockingly, the judge yeah. is an Azorius identifying player. <laughs> I play control decks. I'm like, I live and breathe what Azorius is and represents. <laughs> the art of this shows a... Isperia, the judge yeah, the, right. the, the late judge leader of the Azorias <laughs> definitely in stone the uh, flavor text is a power vacuum for the Azorias a keepsake for Vraska so she's clearly turned poor Isperia into a statue I and I sad. just feel like this is such an attack on me <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite characters like representing this Blue, uh, I mean not blue. This black green strategy destroying the epitome of the leadership of control oh, and no. justice. <laughs> and not only that, I'm—I wouldn't say I have a deep fear, but I have a reasonably deep set distrust of fungi. I I really <laughs> don't like mushrooms very much. Like even uh, saproling tokens but and yeah. all of that sort of thing. Like, I you. had a hard, yeah, I, they just. They grow on things. They're creepy. The whole spores thing—it it—it just scares me on a fundamental level, which I think is healthy. <laughs> and the statue of Asperia has mushrooms growing all over it. <laughs> it's just she's having a bad time. It is. It's it's a personal attack. Wow, this
1: card just got so much more tragic than I <laughs> <so>
0: expected. <laughs> I it's look at it at the same so way again. So powerful. <laughs> uh, it. As soon as Guilds of Ravnica comes out, even before it comes out, as soon as pre-releases the thing, people are going to be using this and being like, trophy your Planeswalker, trophy your non-basic, trophy your Mm. Blood Moon, all kinds of things. It's amazing.
2: Uh, The other thing I'd just add um, is even for decks that don't necessarily want to play this main, oh, sorry, the other deck that would consider probably not playing this main is a deck like Storm um, because you don't have space in the main deck for cards that don't, you know, generate mana or draw cards or whatever. Um, but I'm quite sure that JP will be looking to play this in the sideboard of his mm. um, Storm deck because one of the things a combo deck wants to do is, you know, game one, your plan is just to kill your opponent before they can react. But game two, you've got to be able to deal with all of the nonsense they're bringing in to stop you. And this deals with everything. Yeah. Past um, of you know, Nice dampening sphere you had there.
0: Oh, my damping sphere. (laughs) (laughs) It's
2: covered
1: in mushrooms. Uh, (laughs) The worst outcome. (laughs) All right.
0: With that, let's wrap up the episode. Thanks for joining us this time. Next time, we're probably going to talk a little bit more about anything else from the Guilds of Ravnica spoiler that gets revealed um, that we think is relevant to Highlander. Uh, We're kind of looking at this and being like, "Ah, it's okay that we'll record this in the middle of spoilers. We won't have much to talk about. And then they... give this one to us and we're like, (laughs) boy. (laughs) Um, So, well, if anything else catches our eye, we'll talk about it in the next episode. So thanks for joining us. If you like the show, come give us a like on Facebook or at facebook.com slash HighlanderCast. We're also on Twitter at HighlanderCast. Both of those places you can shoot us some questions or feedback and we can answer you very directly. If you'd like to follow any of us individually, Vance and myself are on Twitter. I'm Foxes for Sale and he's at Fancy and Notions. Um, If you like what you hear and you want to support us more, you can join the show's Patreon. If you go over to patreon.com HighlanderCast, get priority on show topic suggestions. If we do any giveaways, we'll be doing it primarily through the Patreon. And it's just a way to help us make the show better for you. And we really appreciate everyone who is currently helping us out. If you'd like to get more involved in the Seven Point Highlander community, go check out ozeternal.com or search up Seven Point Highlander on Facebook because there is a Facebook group, not just the page for the podcast. And we also have an official Discord, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And we'll also chuck in the show notes a couple of links to some of these decks that we've been talking about, the control decks, the um, prototypical blue-red uh blue red moon deck and all of the other variants Well, not all of them but some of the other variants that sars was talking about earlier and with that thanks for listening everyone and good luck at your next Islander tournament thanks everyone have fun everyone